Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This is David Shoemaker, and I'd like to welcome you to Living Thelema. The path of the great work begins with thorough self-knowledge. After all, how can we transform ourselves if we don't understand the raw material? How can we judge our own work if we don't have the proper tools for its inspection? Accordingly, any tool that can aid us in self-knowledge is a worthy tool for the magician. And the psychological concepts and processes described by Carl Jung are one such set of tools. Today we're going to be focusing on one aspect of a system known as the anima or animus complex. Put simply, the anima is the unconscious feminine aspect of one who consciously identifies as male, and the animus is the unconscious masculine aspect of a person who consciously identifies as female. Now, before I go into more specifics on the anima and animus themselves, I want to show how this is an outgrowth of, of Jung's model uh, as a whole. His, his model of the psyche is based on the principle of union of opposites, the principle that the striving to be whole and complete is hardwired into our psyche, and that includes a balancing between conscious and unconscious. So he felt that the striving for union with this contrasexual force in the unconscious was really um, an expression of the underlying drive towards intrapsychic balance and towards um, forging a link between conscious and unconscious. In many ways, it's like a hydraulic model of the psyche, really. Um, the more you push down into the unconscious, the more you try to repress something, not think about it, not acknowledge it, there is an, an equal and opposite push back. So um, like a water-filled balloon, you push down, and the more pressure you exert, the more it tries to, to push back and out in other directions, and uh, you push too hard, it, it explodes. Um, accordingly, um, when the unconscious, according to the model, you know, when the unconscious uh, feels us pushing something down, it tries to send a message back, a balancing message. The, the impulse behind this message, according to Jung, is one of... Um, something that will, will balance what the unconscious is sensing going on in the conscious. So one way this happens is it sends a dream uh, with a message that, if heeded, would be a balancing force. It doesn't mean the unconscious is always right, per se. It means there's a necessity to take into account the data that's coming both from the conscious sensory apparatus and so on and from the unconscious. Um, if we don't do this, if, if we indulge overly in uh, repression and um, ignoring aspects of self, uh, uh, not acknowledging them, then we may be obsessed by the drives. The, uh, the archetypes and the, the impulses that we're not acknowledging have to try harder and harder to get our attention. So uh, the dreams might be nightmares, or we might find ourselves behaving in ways that seem very different than our conscious attitudes and values would, would uh, lead us to, to, to try to behave in. So um, it's a recipe for bad news if we, if we don't acknowledge and engage with the unconscious and listen to its message. Um, if you want a magical application of this principle, a sort of a, in terms of magical thelemic philosophy, I think you can find some interesting material related to the uniting of the higher and lower, the light and the dark, the conscious and unconscious, and, and the, the idea that this union is essential for uh, health and, and wholeness. 
If we look in Liberzati, for example, uh, let me read you the passage that's relevant here in my view. Um, I reveal unto you a great mystery. Ye stand between the abyss of height and the abyss of depth. In either awaits you a companion, and that companion is yourself. Ye can have no other companion. Many have arisen, being wise. They have said, Seek out the glittering image in the place ever golden, and unite yourselves with it. Many have arisen, being foolish. They have said, Stoop down into the darkly splendid world, and be wedded to that blind creature of the slime. I, who am beyond wisdom and folly, arise and say unto you, Achieve both weddings. Unite yourselves with both. Beware, beware, I say, lest ye seek after the one and lose the other. My adepts stand upright, their head above the heavens, their feet below the hells. But since one is naturally attracted to the angel, another to the demon, let the first strengthen the lower link, and the last attach more firmly to the higher. Thus shall equilibrium become perfect. I will aid my disciples. As fast as they acquire this balanced power and joy, so faster will I push them. So, some passages to contemplate there in light of what we're talking about here. Another psychological example of this union of opposites and its uh, effect in producing a more healthy and whole individual is the embracing of the shadow that we've touched on in, in previous segments. The shadow, of course, is anything unacknowledged in ourselves, and when we engage with that and own it, uh, we grow from it. Now, let's turn to the more specific uh, theory of the anima animus and uh, look at uh, some implications of that. The basic theory is that a person whose outward and conscious identification is primarily of one gender will have a less expressed, mostly unconscious aspect embodying the other gender's characteristics. Now, Jung described the anima and animus as being archetypes of the collective unconscious, existing independently of a person's individual experience. I like to think of this as, as with all archetypes, as uh, the archetype is like a coat rack, and it it has a certain shape, it has a certain form that's universal, but what we hang onto it, the coat, the specific coat that we hang onto it, is an outgrowth of our own personal experience. So the form, the specific form the archetypes take in our lives will be somewhat dependent on our personal experience, but the archetype itself is something universal. Now, when you talk about anima animus in this way, I think there's a real danger of societal gender stereotypes coming into play. Um, when we try to talk about universal, quote-unquote, masculine and feminine traits. And Jung himself likely fell into that trap um, based on the views of gender which were prevalent in his time. I guess we're all, to some extent, slaves of the, uh, of the uh, current state of knowledge in terms of uh, the human mind. Um, yet, I think if we take a step back from, from Jung's specific model, we can understand anima animus more flexibly as an expression of a fairly obvious fact. Whatever one's conscious gender identification may be, that is, whatever characteristics the individual feels express his or her gender identity, the complementary aspects with which he or she does not so much identify will embody an unexpressed and largely unexplored aspect of self, at least in the person who's not done much inner work yet. 
Now, Jung felt that the development of the anima and animus reflected specific successive levels of psychological growth for the man or woman. Uh, this is a controversial aspect of his theory as well, but just to be complete, I'm, I'm presenting it. For the man, these levels are said to reflect a deepening connection with uh, emotion, intuition, and spirituality. Um, that is, the more the man connects with the feminine aspect in his unconscious, the more he opens up a connection with emotion, intuition, and spirituality. For the woman, um, supposedly, these levels of development show a maturing relationship to various forms of power, I guess would be one way of, of summarizing it. Here again, there's the obvious danger of falling into gender stereotypes, but um, the underlying theory may be useful to us as a way of understanding our deepening relationship with unexpressed aspects, aspects of self, generally. Um, I think the reason that the anima and animus is so important to psychological self-exploration and growth is that the polarity of gender identity is an easily accessible and virtually universal experience in human life, conscious human life. We can identify fairly readily with a striving to actualize underdeveloped aspects of self via gender characteristics, whereas other areas of exploration may be harder to grasp at first. They'll be so alien-seeming as to, to be entirely unconscious. We are conscious of gender, however, and the traits that we associate with gender, uh, any individual. So the anima animus is an easier handhold as we begin the exploration of unacknowledged and unexplored aspects of self. Because of this, because the anima animus is kind of the, the gateway to that further exploration, we can understand the anima and animus as an expression of the classical psychopomp, the guide to our own personal underworld, the unconscious. Uh, and thus it helps us to begin bridging the conscious and unconscious minds, and ultimately to aid in our path toward building the conscious link between the ego and the self, with a capital S, which is so important to wholeness and health. Uh, listen to some prior segments on uh, Kabbalistic psychology and such for a better understanding of ego and self. The corresponding principle of the ego-self axis, put in terms of the magical path, is the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. It is very important, very very important to understand that I am not telling you that the HGA is the same thing as the anima and animus. As always, I would never try to define for anyone else what the HGA is or isn't for them. Um, what I am saying is that the HGA ultimately serves as our primary guide to the unexplored realms of self. The HGA is intimately entwined with the very core of our being, and any influence it has upon the everyday ego brings vibrant insight into who we really are, the true will. In this way, the HGA serves many of the same functions as the anima and animus at a more advanced and exalted level. Once firmly established and stabilized, the knowledge and conversation is a direct and open channel to the unconscious in both its personal and collective manifestations. So uh, the ultimate goal is, uh, is one, but uh, you can see almost the anima animus as um, an early manifestation of the influence of the HGA as, as, that, as that guide. As an aside, it's, it's important here also to understand that the HGA may or may not be perceived as being of the opposite sex or of any defined sex at all. Um, the experience of adepts varies widely in this regard. Um, so... What is the relationship between the anima and animus and the HGA exactly? 
and how do these tend to function in the unfolding path of the initiate. In one sense, we can see the anima and animus as residing in yesod, um, that is, the, the level of the nefesh. Uh, the guide to the unconscious, initially, is those initial um, intuitive and symbolic breadcrumbs that are in fact foreshadowed elements of the eventual conscious communion with the HGA after knowledge and conversation. So in the pre-adept stage, pre-knowledge and conversation, um, we need uh, a guide to our, to our own unconscious via whatever means are available to us. And those means at first tend to be things like we associate with Yesod and the Nefesh, the, the intuition and uh, dreams and symbols and such. The vision of the HGA attributed to Malkuth awakens us to the spiritual reality behind the veil of nature. And most importantly, the veil which has blinded us to our own spiritual reality beneath the opaque shell of body and personality we emphasize so much in mundane life. At Yesod, we begin to get instruction from the HGA as to the nature of this spiritual reality, veiled in the language of symbols, dreams, astral experiences, and intuition. In this place, the anima and animus is, uh, I think in a very full sense, our guide to further attainment. Jung felt that the anima and animus would appear in dreams as a guide or a friend. And in fact, we have some literary and mythological reference points for this as well. Um, consider the poet Virgil, uh, guiding Dante through the underworld in the Inferno, or the role of the god Hermes uh, as the so-called messenger of the gods, uh, one who bridges the human and divine worlds, another metaphor for conscious and unconscious realms. Notably, I should add, uh, Hermes is often depicted as androgynous, a further connection with the contrasexual nature of the anima and animus. Now, um, Let's set, set the theory aside here and talk a little bit about implications in, in practical life. Uh, one of the most common ways in which the anima and animus is visible and potent in our daily lives is through projection onto our love partners, uh, whether actual or merely desired. That is, whether we possess the person as a partner or we just really wish we did. Um, the yearning for the other person, the sense that somehow they complete us or heal us, that they have something we need, um, the intensity of our desire to possess them. All of these are often symptoms of an anima or, anima or animus projection. The other person symbolizes an unexpressed aspect of self. Um, and if we're not sufficiently aware of this perceived deficit in ourselves, the intensity of our desire for them will generally be directly proportional to our level of blindness to this uh, perception. And now, Anima and animus projections inevitably lead to disappointment because, of course, the object of our desire, who is a mere human, can never live up to the expectation of perfect divine love that uh, we are holding in our minds as we project uh, the anima and animus onto them. Something in us that is perceived as being so exalted, so other, so mystical, so divine, so uh, so needed, uh, is going to be way too much for another human to bear. And I think everyone can stand to take stock of the expectations that they have of their partners and, uh, and kind of reel those in a little bit to recognize that uh, 
some of what we want we've already got. And if we can acknowledge that we already have it, maybe we can actually engage with the real person who's in front of us. So uh, let's look at some exercises. I have a lot of things to suggest in terms of what we've been talking about today that you may find useful as you, uh, as you go through your day. So start by listing your beliefs about the personality characteristics of masculinity and femininity. Not what you think society believes, but what you actually believe. If you have trouble coming up with such a list, then you can fall back on listing your sense of society's beliefs. Um, after all, your sense of society's beliefs will be somewhat reflective of internalized values. That is, you've at least internalized what you think people think. <laughs> so uh, list out, any uh, using either of those lenses, uh, all the characteristics you associate with masculinity and femininity. Uh, now... Compare your, your own personality characteristics to those on your list based on your identified gender. Circle those that you feel you embody and put a line through those that you feel you do not embody. Now look at the items you've crossed out. Uh, each day, pick one of those characteristics and make a conscious effort to live out that characteristic through the day in interpersonal interactions as well as your private thoughts. It's much like uh, when Crowley discusses taking on a magical personality that may have uh, characteristics, values, behaviors that are very alien to your, your normal everyday ego. Um, here what you're doing is taking on essentially a magical personality where the trait in question that you don't feel like you normally embody is the focus. Uh, note the results in your diary, of course. Um, so do that, do that with all the... Um, items that you've crossed out. Now look at the items that you've circled, the ones that you feel you do consciously embody. Each day pick one of these characteristics and make a conscious effort not to live it out that day. So here you're taking on a magical personality that where there's a, an absence of the trade in question. And note those results in your diary. Now pay attention to the less obvious ways in which your daily behavior and experience of yourself and the world change as you're doing this. By living out those aspects of self which are rarely given voice, uh, we can open a channel for other suppressed or unexplored characteristics to surface. You may surprise yourself um, with how you think and feel um, simply because you've decided to embody or not to embody one of these characteristics that you associate with gender, either your own or, or the opposite. Um, you might also want to ask a friend or partner what they've noticed about your behavior at the end of the day. So don't tell them what you're trying to do. Don't tell them, today I'm trying to be absolutely not intellectual at all. You know, uh, Don't tell them that. Make it a blind study. Uh, and then at the end of the day, see if they've noticed anything. Um, and this is obviously this is a way of cross-checking whether the outward expression of your chosen characteristic uh, shows up, you know, um, whether your decision to embody something is actually manifested in observable behavior that, that uh, extends beyond your own processing mentally. So uh, that's a series of, of steps to take in one particular direction to explore anima and animus. But uh, as I hinted at before, another very, very useful and valid and important 
thing to do is watch for anima and animus projections onto partners or desired partners. So you can tap into this a little bit more directly if you um, start by listening, listing the characteristics of your partner as you see them, the personality characteristics. Um, and then reflect on, you know, do a series of meditations on how you might benefit from increasing the expression of those characteristics in your life. In other words, you've just made a list of things that this other desired person has that perhaps by definition you are saying you don't. Um, there, there'll be some overlap, I'm sure, but, um, you know, you might, you might want to limit the list to things that you feel your partner embodies that in fact you don't, you don't, you know, the characteristics that you feel you really do not express. And, uh, and then consider how, how your life would look and how you would feel if you actually, in a sense, became more like your partner. Um, this is one way of working to withdraw those projections to, to say, wait a minute, these are, these are not things that are only available to me through this other person. Um, they are available as potentials within me right now and in the future. And once again, when you open the door to exploration of these kind of, uh, more accessible, aspects of unexplored self, like gender characteristics, you, um, you may allow other content to come through other awarenesses, other, um, intuitions, other unexplored aspects of self to, they may be able to surface more readily. And then, uh, finally, uh, I want to suggest that this will be no surprise to you. If you've listened to any of my previous segments, uh, record your dreams for at least a few months paying special attention to those figures that appear as guides. Start a list of the characteristics of these guides, adding to it each time a new guide appears in a subsequent dream. Now, just to be clear on what I mean by a guide in a dream, um, you know, you, you may dream about exploring a house and it turns out your best friend from high school is there with you, exploring the house with you. So, that might be one example of a guide. It might be more explicit, like you're in some place unknown to you and there's, uh, you know, there's, I don't know, a policeman or somebody's there to show you around or to, to, uh, to show you the lay of the land. And, uh, um, you know, if you've done any scrying efforts, you'll be familiar with the idea of, of a guide showing up to, to tell you about the place you're scrying and such. Uh, this is not that different. Um, you'll have a dream, and the unconscious itself will say, okay, here's the person who knows what's going on here. So that's your guide. Make a list of the characteristics of these, these uh, figures as they appear. And after a few weeks of this, you'll have a list which may be quite suggestive in terms of directions for personal exploration. How could you be more like these guides? In what ways would this represent growth or change for you? So... Um, there's a host of, uh, of things to experiment with, and I hope you have fun doing it. Um, I, I do also hope, of course, that uh, that you learn a lot. Um, as I've said several times here today, there is so much to be gained by opening this door to introspection and self-knowledge. And once again, that self-knowledge is the basis of much of the success that you can experience in the great work, in the magical path, on the path of return. 
So I hope this has been uh, useful and interesting to you. As always, if you have questions or comments, send them to me uh, at, I've uh, got a new email address for you, david at livingthelima.com. Um, we have the Living Thelema page on Facebook for uh, questions, discussion, um, announcements, and such. And uh, please also visit livingthelema.com, uh, the website, for uh, more resources on these materials and my uh, biographical information if you're interested. Thanks for listening. Love is the law. Love under will. <laughs>